During the COVID-19 crisis, there has been a significant increase in domestic violence in Europe. Countries facing these increasing numbers were obliged to take action. In this podcast, we argue that the COVID crisis has the potential to make a change by developing and improving prevention techniques. In this podcast, we will focus on several levels and investigate whether or something has changed. We do acknowledge that this issue is present among all genders, classes, and sexualities. But this podcast will primarily focus on women in Europe and their experiences. As we talk about violence and abuse, we would like to issue a trigger warning for all people who don't feel comfortable with these topics. In today's episode, in Finland, 694%. That's a really dramatic increase. A lot of politicians did not deem services such as shelters and organizations essential. It doesn't fit with our view on what a victim should actually be. Welcome to the Femme Europe podcast with Dasha Maradoskaya and Alexandra Burns. According to the United Nations, domestic abuse can be defined as a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control over an intimate partner. And this abuse can come in various different forms. It can be physical abuse, it can be sexual, emotional, economic, or psychological abuse. Yeah, as there are so many types of abuse, I would really like to focus on each type of abuse so that we have a detailed picture of what yeah domestic abuse can look like. And I would start with sexual abuse because that's a very yeah common form of abuse. Um, it involves uh, forcing a partner to take part in a sex act when the partner does not consent. And you may be in a sexually abusive relationship if your partner wants you to dress in a sexual way and you don't give consent, or if your partner insults you in sexual ways or calls you sexual names or hurts you with weapons or objects during sex. Yeah, now that you mentioned the last point that is heavily interlinked with physical abuse, obviously, and, you know, physical abuse is probably one of the most common types of abuse when it comes to domestic violence and it's most well-known one as well so apart from the hurting your partner with weapons or objects to coerce them into having sex with you or during sex there are other forms that can and other examples that we can think of such as hitting kicking grabbing pushing slapping biting or shoving your uh your partner but what's also interesting about physical abuse is that it does not necessarily entail only hurting the partner directly. It can also imply that um, the perpetrator or the offender will also threaten or physically hurt people that the victim cares for or damage the, the victim's property. So examples can include hurting the victim's children, uh, pets, family members, or damage any property that they have. Oh, this is also linked to emotional abuse because emotional abuse also includes uh, threatening the children or family or pets. It also includes other things like undermining a person's sense of self-worth, including constant criticism or name-calling or verbally abusing the partner, damaging a partner's relationship with children or not letting a partner see friends and family, for instance. 
Yeah, and the last point that you mentioned is uh, also related to psychological abuse, because one of the main examples that we can think of are elements of psychological abuse includes forced isolation from friends, family, school, you know, intimidation in case of miscompliance in this case. But what's also an important factor that should be pointed out here is that psychological abuse also can include isolation from any work. That's also linked to financial abuse or economic abuse. Financial and economic abuse involves forbidding attendance at school or employment and involves making or attempting to make a person financially dependent by maintaining total control over financial resources or by withholding access to money, for instance. So I think all of these kinds of abuse are somehow um, interrelated and interlinked, which we should have in mind when talking about domestic violence. Yeah, so first of all, I think it's important to mention why we should talk about this topic right now. So Corona and yeah, the lockdown and restrictions had a very severe impact on domestic violence. And this is actually the reason why we want to talk about it right now. And you know what really shocked me, Dasha, is many support services and like shelters have been considered non-essential by politicians. And actually, I thought that it should seem quite intuitive that in times of lockdown, levels of domestic violence go up. And also most of our uh, most of the people that responded to our survey also have this the, that intuition, and we can look at this uh, later on as well. Yeah, definitely. So access to formal support services such as uh, like you mentioned shelters or NGOs or any you know other institutions has been challenged. And there there are quite a few reasons for that. So one of the ones that we can think of is the closure of such institutions. Another is that there was under provision of such services and underfunding. And like you said, of course, this is related to the fact that they have been considered non-essential and thus there was far less attention uh, given to these kinds of services uh, within the political realm. But I think it's also important to recognize that informal social networks, such as the friends, families, neighbors, or even colleagues of the victims and survivors, which do play a central role in the difficult times of victims or even contribute to helping the victim get out of the situation or cope with the situation. And the role of these networks has been diminished as well. And that is also primarily to do with the restrictions on, you know, how many people can gather in one space, for example, or how often can you, you know, leave your house. That definitely played a role in making it difficult for the victims to reach out to these networks. And that's actually a, a really important point to mention, because in the survey that we sent out, we did ask uh, European students about their experience with domestic violence or the experience of someone they know. And I think it was about 19 percent of the people, uh, of the respondents who talked about their own experience, who said that one of the actions that they took when trying to um, either get out of the situation or cope with it is that they, uh, they sought help from a family member or a friend or just a close person in general. And with regards to the same action, but the experience of domestic violence of someone they know, it was, I think, about a third. So as we can see, it's, it's a very common action that people take when it comes to domestic violence. We have some stats from the European Parliament uh, in a study requested by the FEM Committee. 
uh, in an article called Tackling Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence in Europe. And they stated that in France, for instance, there has been a 30% increase in registered calls in domestic violence helplines. In Italy, it were uh, 55%, in Ireland, 25 and in Finland, 694%. I mean, that's a, that's a really dramatic increase. We also thought that it would be very important to discuss the different types of consequences that domestic violence has on women and on victims and survivors of domestic abuse. And because, as we discussed in the beginning, there are so many different types of domestic violence, such as physical, economic, sexual, etc., there are subsequently many different types of consequences that we can talk about today. So, for example, psychological consequences, and that can include things like trauma, fear, anxiety. Victims can turn to alcohol or drugs and subsequently develop some kind of alcohol or drug abuse, as well as eating disorders. Our guest, Pauline Arten, mentioned something very interesting concerning the psychological impact of domestic violence on victims. She mentioned in our interview that the trauma challenges the continuity of our narrative. The story, the narrative is very important to victims because there's a challenge in the continuity of this story, this narrative that we have. Uh, so continuity is very important for us to continue our lives. And when there's something so severe, uh, such as a crime, or in this case, with, with regards to domestic violence, it halts and it challenges our continuity of ourself. You know, our story stops and we are forced to ask the questions, okay, why is this happening to me? Who are the antagonists in this story? Who is the person that is beating me? What do I do with it? How can I live with it? And it's these very stories, uh, it's these questions that all relate to the sense of meaning making that we need to do with regards to understanding and for us to continue with our narrative, with our story, with our identity. There are also economic perspective, which we can think about. And a prominent example that is not often discussed that is attributed to the economic consequence is that victims of domestic violence lose time from paid work as a result of the assaults. There can be various medical consequences, for instance, migraines, infections, gastrointestinal problems, sleep problems, sexually transmitted diseases, vaginal bleeding or infections, general irritation, and urinary tract infections, for instance. As you can see, there's a variety of consequences that victims of domestic violence can face. And maybe we can dive deeper into the medical perspective a bit. Now that you mentioned all of these medical consequences that victims of domestic violence can face, it's even more heartbreaking to talk about the medical perspective. Proper treatment of victims and survivors of domestic violence has remained on a very average level or even decreased during the pandemic. And that is all despite the fact that the numbers of cases have been increasing since the beginning of COVID-19. It is only in nine of the 27 EU member states that regular training and education is provided to health professionals at the initial training stage as well as in service. But in 10 member states, no regular training on violence against women or domestic violence 
in any of the health professions is reported. And one of these countries is actually Finland, which, as we have seen, has registered the highest increase in the number of phone calls related to domestic violence. As we stated in the beginning, we want a multifaceted view. So I would also dive deeper into the sociological perspective. Maybe we can talk about some risk factors. So during Corona, there has been a significant increase in risk factors. I will list some of them. For instance, unemployment, poverty, alcohol abuse, social norms that accept violence, social isolation, inadequate victim care, lack of information and gender inequality in general. Maybe we should focus on the factors that led to the increase in domestic violence during the pandemic and maybe focus on perpetrators, the victims. So some of the factors that led to this increase can actually be attributed to both the uh, behaviors or changes in life patterns of both the perpetrators and the victims. For example, increased contact between the two as a result of the lockdowns or changes in work and uh, home life patterns, including things such as unemployment, reduced hours and working from home. With regards to the perpetrators alone, other factors that could have led to this increase in domestic violence numbers can include increase in controlling behaviors of perpetrators against victims, increase in alcohol consumption, like you pointed out, Alexandra, as well as the psychological impact of the pandemic. With regards to the factors that aggravated the situation for victims of domestic violence, one can say that the pandemic has had a huge psychological impact on the victims. So there has been an increased level of stress, for instance, and also increased level of social isolation. And as we know, there are gender inequalities in many of the households. And women take on more caring responsibilities. And yeah, during the pandemic, these caring responsibilities increased due to the closure of schools and daycare centers. Women generally have not been able to seek support from friends and family during lockdown and have been reduced in their ability to leave home generally and to uh, flee from the perpetrator. And also the, the whole situation was aggravated by the lack of access to support services, as we mentioned uh, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should focus more on the support services. As we have stated in the beginning, the closure of various shelters, organizations, and other support services, formal and informal, have significantly aggravated the situation for victims and survivors of domestic violence. And it's, it's important to discuss why the access to such services was limited, and there are pl a plethora of reasons for that. So there was the partial or complete closure of support services. There was the problem of reduced space in shelters to allow for social distancing requirements, as well as reduced staffing capacity and resources, challenges in moving the support services from face-to-face -face practices to more virtual actions and activities, as well as the burnout of staff, partially due to the increased workloads. According to Pauline Arden, the closure of these support services has been significant for the victims and survivors of domestic violence. These groups are there because they experience the same thing. And by experiencing the same thing, 
they get the acknowledgement and the recognition uh, when they tell their own stories, when they are trying to make, explain and make sense of what has happened to them. It's the, these groups that they can rely on when their own environment is, uh, is not readily available for them. And uh, therefore, they are very, very important. Um, they also are uh, great to talk about when, when they've experienced something new or different uh, within their lives uh, or when they have their trial and they run into an issue. Uh, the groups can help as well. Um, and so they, these groups are essential to that whole sense of meaning making um, and essential to help them regain that continuity in their self and their life story because simply because they've been through the same thing if because of covid that they weren't able to to partake in these groups it just gives them that big a bigger hurdle to really understand of what happened to them and how they can deal with that and what to do next it's it's more than just a shoulder to cry on it's someone that you can turn to when you're just lost and you don't know what to do next and uh, they can help you give you tips advice on what to do on how to go about uh, these new things that they are experiencing in their lives but there are also other sectors that we could discuss due to the fact that children were not able to go to school anymore uh, schools, for instance, have been less able to identify signs of domestic violence in the families. With regards to the sociological perspective, we should also mention the role of the society, or more precisely, the interaction between the victim and the society. Pauline Arten differentiates between positive and negative forms of interaction. We do not form the narratives ourselves. Our narrative identity is formed by talking and evaluating experiences with others. Also, we have what is known as the meta-narratives, the societal narratives um, that influence also uh, the way that we view things. We evaluate experiences and it also tells us a bit on how to behave. And it's that interaction that is very important. It can go actually really well when a survivor of domestic violence tells her uh, or his story, it can impact society, it can impact the narrative, but it also, society's narrative, uh, the societal narrative, actually impacts the survivor's uh, narrative as well. It's a sort of an interaction with one another. It can be good, but sometimes uh, the, the interaction is very negative. I would also like to take a moment to discuss one of the most prominent sociological theories that seeks to explain and tries to identify the reasons uh, as to which victim blaming and practices like society turning against the victim occur in the first place. And that is the theory of the just world, which in very simple terms argues that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And whenever something bad happens to somebody good, generally society gets very distressed about it and is trying to rationalize and find explanations as to why that has occurred. And according to Pauline Arden, there are two main ways that members of society can seek to rationalize it and to sort of cope with it. First is to sympathize with the victim. However, the problem here is that if the victim does not accept the sympathy and is rather vocal, for example, about their experience with domestic violence and their experience with being the victim. The 
society might turn away from the victim, thinking that they brought it upon themselves. To have that belief in just world, when to deal with this distress, we immediately go on to explaining why these things happen. Oh, she shouldn't have walked alone uh, on the streets at night. You know, that's why she was uh, the victim of a sexual attack. And it's very easy to do that kind of thing, but it's it's a way of for us to sort of deal with the fact that uh, bad things happen to good people. Concerning the topic of victim blaming, in our interview with Pauline Arten, uh, she explained how the society's picture of the victim influences the victim's behavior or, more precisely, the victim's decision to speak up. The victim actually has a very quite negative connotation. Um, it's uh, derived uh, from the word Latin word victima, and it actually implies that the person that has experienced some form of victimization is sort of a sacrificial animal. With that word, we're actually also implying victims to be more uh, quiet and to, 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 of course, you know, grieve over the fact that something ha bad happened to them, not to speak out openly. They forgive and forget or move on uh, at some point. Survivor is, in that sense, a very more neutral word uh, and is often preferred by uh, people that have experienced wrongdoing. The sympathy is, doesn't reach the victim because the victim or a survivor speaks out uh, and is very verbal about what happened to uh, him or her and is very verbal in wanting to take action. It doesn't fit with our view on what a victim should actually be. In our interview, Pauline Arten also explained that the society's stereotypes can also preclude the victim from speaking up. When the, the stereotype that's being portrayed in the message in these campaigns, when it doesn't align to the stereotype, that could actually quickly lead to victim blaming uh, or stigmatization or labeling. And that's why it's sometimes um, there are multiple factors that could actually impact the victim wanting to speak out or wanting to say something, but is held back because it doesn't fit that certain stereotype or because it's getting messages that, you know, he or she is to blame for it. From the political perspective, there has simply been a lack of funding or political commitment to support services for victims of domestic violence during the pandemic. But I think that there have also been some political actions that have actually been quite, quite good. We have seen some creative political approaches in some European countries, as in France, uh, the UK, and Slovenia, Croatia. Maybe we can we can focus on these just as a as a positive example. So, for example, in France, like you mentioned, one of the new sort of rules that we could say that was institutionalized was the use of a code word that was set in pharmacies, and basically the idea was that you know if a victim was in a particular a situation where she was in danger or you know if she did experience severe domestic violence at home she could go up to any pharmacy staff and say the code word which was mask 19 to receive help in a secure way in a confidential way and following the established procedure you know staff would collect the victims information in a discreet manner and provide a safe space whilst contacting support organizations the uk also 
uh, use that idea. And in their pharmacies, if you say, uh, if you ask for any, uh, which stands for action need needed immediately, uh, mm -hmm. you can also, yeah, as a victim, get immediate help in the pharmacy. Yeah, I think uh, like this is such a good idea that uh, maybe uh, the EU should introduce this as a kind of new institution that mm -hmm. in all European mm -hmm. countries, if you go to the pharmacy, that uh, by saying this code work, you can get immediate help. And uh, I think that, yeah, as all European countries are affected by the issue of domestic violence, this would maybe be a good idea. It's not that difficult to institutionalize it, I think. It's just a matter of actually educating the staff, which, of course, it can be a timely matter. But I think considering how how many consequences victims of domestic violence have to face in general, I think that's it's a better option. There have been other countries which have also been creative in, in terms of measures uh, taken to prevent and combat domestic violence. For instance, in, in Slovenia, they have introduced a new 24-7 uh, telephone helpline mm -hmm. for victims and also expanded actually the capacity of emergency services and they did some social skills rehabilitation workshops for perpetrators so they have really been creative in, in terms of tackling the issue of domestic violence. It makes me very hopeful actually to like see that quite a lot of countries are addressing this issue as you have mentioned, you know, a lot of politicians did not deem uh, services such as shelters and organizations essential. That, that was, of course, heartbreaking. But to see that, nevertheless, there are new practices that are being institutionalized, it um, makes me hopeful. <laughs> we have a little list of ideas what could be done to mm -hmm. tackle the issue of domestic violence. So in our survey that we sent out to our listeners, uh, we asked them what did they think could have been done differently or could have been done, period, to combat the issue of domestic violence more efficiently. And that would be either with regards to their own experience, with regards to the experience of someone they know, or even in general. And some of the points that we identified was creating more awareness and education for the school staff with being able to identify the red flags and in the behavior of either the children or even among the staff members themselves and to be able to uh, respond to these red flags in a, in a qualified manner. Another important factor that was identified was making the criminal justice system more efficient in that sometimes the court processes take way too long to come to a ruling. Additionally, and sort of related to that, is getting rid of some of the administrative procedures that make it longer for the victim to seek judicial help. With regards to the justice system, Pauline Arten clarifies the role that the victim actually plays during the trial. Justice system is often in a clash with the victim's narrative because the justice narrative is portrayed as rationality very black and white thinking of with regards to looking at the fact of what happened and trying to determine the fault with the perpetrator and what to do about it. The victim has a, has a very emotional story in that sense. The victim can now play luckily a bigger role in the justice system and the justice process than since the 1970s, but it's still 
very small. And it all comes down to uh, them having to uh, give a victim impact statement during the trials. And this is only reserved to those where the, um, in the Netherlands, where there's the, the crimes are of a certain severity level. Uh, so it's not open for anybody. Um, so it's this victim impact statement, which is often seen as a very emotional story that the victims can give during the trial. Many critics think that, that this victim impact statement doesn't necessarily fit with uh, within the justice, uh, within the trial, because it's very rational. It's all, it focuses very much on the facts and the emotional story just doesn't fit in that. Additionally, with regards to the justice system, specifically the trial processes, it is important to mention that judiciary's excessive focus on the offenders' narrative rather than the emotional story of the victim. It's often the victim versus the perpetrator. Um, and it's, it's, it's their word against each other. The, the victim um, has often a different story than the perpetrator. And in the justice process, in the, ju in the trial, for example, uh, that's where you know the focus is very much on the perpetrator and what he or she did, and very much focus on uh, giving him or her the final word. And that's where the victim, of course, becomes a bystander in his or her own trial. The story is often contested, and where the victim or survivor is provided with only one opportunity to speak out through that victim impact statement during the trial, but the final word is left to the perpetrator. Another point that was mentioned is training police officers and sensibilizing them to this issue. Finally, and although not a policy but a social aspect, it is still something vital to keep in mind, and that is listening to the victim and not judging them when they're willing to share their experience with you. And just to add on that, um, according to Pauline, there is a very, very important function and societal implication of listening to the victim and to the narratives of the victim. That sense of meaning making that is very important because through narrative, by hearing the narratives of uh, these survivors of domestic violence, we start to understand also what happened to them, why it happened to them, their sense of meaning making, and then also will help us to further understand, okay, why does domestic violence occur and how can we prevent it? Or can we maybe at some point intervene and see how we can help these uh, survivors of domestic violence. Additionally, it is important to allow the victim and to provide the victim or the survivor of domestic violence with the, with the platform and the opportunity to share their experiences. And not just once or twice, but on a continuous basis whenever they important to reshare their experience once again. They need to be there to help make sense of it and give meaning. Um, and the way to do that is, is by listening and by listening to their stories every single time. Um, in the research that I've done, um, I often see that people at some point in their environment, they just uh, stop asking anymore but because they've heard the story so many times and they feel, look, it's, you know, it's been a few years now. Let's move on. You know, and it's so hard for them to move on. Usually, if they're still very much caught up in the moment, for them, it's it's part of their lives. It's part of their identity. And it's not something that they can just forget, uh, especially when something so severe has happened. And when with domestic violence, we're talking about that, uh, the, the fact, the impact that perpetrator has on the, on the survivor. And it's somebody very close to them. It's years of abuse. 
and that is not something that they can just forget. So uh, being able to, to be there, to listen, to talk with them about it, to be able to help them form, to make sense of uh, what happened, to give it meaning, uh, and then help essentially reform their, uh, their identity to have them uh, continue on in their life story is a way to do that. At this point, I would really like to say thank you to all the people that responded to our survey and take uh, took time to think about the topic and to share their experience. Coming back to the research of Kumar Nazami and Srivastava in their piece on violence against women and mental health, they advise to improve the training of mental health care. They also advised EU member states to implement risk management measures to ensure that coordination between the police, the justice system and the health sector so that vulnerable women do not fall through the cracks. And they also advocated for a more efficient data collection between EU member states to ensure the phenomenon is adequately addressed and measured uh, and it is more easy to identify patterns of violence and then uh, react uh, accordingly to the problem and find good solutions. So we hope that talking about these phenomena helps to advance the process of institutionalizing a variety of measures that would help tackle the issue of domestic violence. Yeah, and hopefully the dramatic increase in the levels of domestic abuse will serve as a wake-up call for European countries to systematically tackle the issue of domestic violence. Many countries have been very creative in responding to the increase in domestic violence by either introducing new helplines or codes, code words, to signal pharmacy staff the need for help. There are many, many ideas out there on how to tackle the problem. The question is just whether countries are willing to make the effort. Thank you so much for listening. This was the Femme Europe podcast with Dasha Baranovskaya and Alexandra Brecht.